morning, friends. Glad to be with you this morning, again, worshiping our God, fellowshipping with you. This great symphony that we have here, it feels good to be called part of a symphony, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah, the Lord is good, and we've enjoyed his presence this morning together. If you're like me, uh, you've been tempted to commit some sin and, and then try to justify committing that sin by suggesting to yourself that it's affecting nobody really but you, but me. I, I'm, I'm really not affecting anybody else. It's just me and the privacy of my own life. And I don't think this is a problem because it's just me and I have to pay the consequences of this myself. Um, and so what's the harm, really? So I, I, today I, I want to I speak to you, if that's you, even if it's not you, and you have a friend that struggles with that, you know what I mean? Um, today you're gonna to find out how dangerous and even if infectious sin is, uh, no matter where it is experienced in your life, no matter to what degree it's experienced in your life, and how your sin, my sin, actually does in fact infect and effect those around us. To do that, I want to begin by reading to you the text that I'm going to be preaching from. And I hope you still have your Bibles open to Mark chapter 9. Mark chapter 9, and I'll be reading verses 42 through 50. Jesus continued his conversation with the twelve who were near him. And he said, starting in verse 42, Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin... It would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell, to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. I don't know if this text hit you the way it hit me in beginning my studies this past week on this section, but it is, it is a moving target, to say the least. Um, this text feels like uh, it might feel to herd cats or conduct a monkey orchestra or a monkey symphony. And not that any of us knows what that's like, uh, I don't think. Much, many of us have tried those things. but. Uh, it feels challenging at the least, and it is challenging. It's a very challenging text. Every commentator that I read, uh, almost to the man, suggested that this is one of the more challenging texts in the New Testament because of all the moving parts, because of all the obscure sayings that come up here from the lips of Jesus. It's difficult to determine what we're actually reading here. 
Part of our problem is being so distant from the writing of this text and not being real familiar with all the inferences Jesus is making in these words. But when you come across challenging scripture, and we do from time to time, um, like this one, it's helpful to keep in mind two things. One is the context. Remember, that, that thing that, that places this passage where it is in this book in the New Testament. What's going on around this text that might be helpful, might be useful. And then secondly, the use of other less challenging passages of Scripture that discuss these same things. So the context here, and then secondly, what other places in the New Testament or Old Testament, the closer the better to this text, helps, actually speaks about these things that could be helpful, useful. So I'm going to try to work through uh, this challenging text today and give you some ideas about what Jesus may have had in mind as he continued his discourse on discipleship that he was having with his 12, these guys that were with him uh, at this time in his ministry. So let's begin with the first thing that would be helpful, context. What is actually happening here in Mark 9 that might be useful to us? Keep in mind where we are. Jesus is still talking to the 12. I think that's the group in view here. And I think specifically he's talking to the Apostle John who asked the question in verse 38 about whether or not we ought to allow other believers who aren't part of our group to do any ministry. You remember what they were talking about prior to John's question? It was who was the greatest among the 12? And so Jesus taking the opportunity that he should have trying to uh, sanctify these men who would later become apostles, he took it upon himself to correct this self-centeredness, this pridefulness, arrogance really, in all 12, and then particularly John the apostle when he was asking Jesus about whether or not he should allow another believer to do ministry. He was talking about discipleship, about growing in Christ, about being part of the family of God. And so uh, we, we'll we get to see that in this context, he's dealing with some specific questions that were being asked uh, and specific things that he was addressing. And we'll get to the other less challenging passages in a moment. So the first is context. What was going on in this text? And I just told you what was going on. And so I think what flows in verse 42 through 50 is out of that conversation about selfishness and arrogance, okay? So keep that in mind. Again, we'll get to other less challenging passages, which is the second strategy for dealing with challenging passages. But the child also, notice that the child shows up again in this particular text. Again, back to the context. Was the child in the last context? In this, I mean, in this context, in the last conversation? Yeah, he was. Remember, Jesus brought a child into the discussion to demonstrate humility and humbleness. And so he brings a child who everybody knows is humble by nature because they don't have anything to be proud about. They're a child. And so Jesus was using a child back then, trying to show them the importance of humility in their conversation about who's the greatest. And then he, the child remained in the room when he continued this conversation. He, he brings him up again in verse 42. Whoever causes one of these little ones, pointing to the child who believes in me, and then etc. And so the child remains in the room. Let's see what we can learn here from this text today and see if the Holy Spirit might apply this to us in some way. 
I'm, I'm hopeful and prayerful that he will. It, it seems a rare occasion when we come across scripture that just doesn't apply to me, right? Uh, if so, there's some spiritual blindness there. But let's, let's dig into this text and see what the Holy Spirit might have for us. First of all, dealing with the causes of sin is the first thing that I want to point out to you. Dealing with the causes of sin and, and the chaos that comes from that sin. Uh, before we get too deep into the maze that's in front of us, I think we need to make a couple clarifying points just so that we don't get off track, all right? The first is this. If you are a genuine believer, all right, you truly have embraced Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you are and always will be eternally saved, all right? Keep that in mind. Now, this text does not teach eternal security, but you can get into the deep weeds if you misunderstand that part about our salvation. If you don't establish that truth up front that we are eternally secure in Christ, we can find ourselves off the deep end when discussing stuff like this in the text before us. For example, if you believe that Jesus is saying that a believer is in danger of hell if they don't deal with sin appropriately, then you have a basic misunderstanding of the gospel. Okay, follow me here. At the center of the gospel message is the promise of eternal life for all who believe in Jesus, right? All who embrace Jesus. Isn't that central to our faith? That if you embrace Jesus Christ, if you believe in Jesus Christ, you are granted eternal life. This is what Jesus said. He grants, he promises eternal life to anyone who would believe in him. In fact, we could say eternal life isn't eternal life if you can lose it, right? I think that's easy to say. So up front, Jesus isn't saying that believers can lose their salvation if they don't deal with sin in their life in just the right way. That's important to hear. So remember, I'm, I'm trying to clear things here before we get into the examination of the text. But as I'm clearing things, I think it's just as important for you to hear that if you call yourself a Christian and aren't willing to deal with known sin in your life, then you're not likely a Christian. Both things are in view here. You cannot say that a true Christian, a genuine believer can lose their salvation. Neither can you say sin is not a big deal to the Christian. It is a big deal to the Christian. It's, it's massive. And so that's the first clarifying point. The second clarifying point that I'm trying to make here this morning for you is this. If you're a genuine believer, you must, as I just mentioned, continue to examine your faith. Continue to make sure that you are walking circumspectly, that you are following Christ with all your heart, your mind, and your soul and strength. And understanding that, that outside of, if, if, you're, if you look at yourself and see that you're outside of God's desire for you, outside of his will in your life, revealed will, not some uh, mysterious hidden will, but his revealed will in Scripture. If you're outside of those boundaries and you're unwilling to do anything about it and you remain calling yourself a Christian, you fooled yourself. Okay? So I, I hope those two things are clarifying for you as we dig in to the text here. And I think that, that we get to that place, or we can, I should, I should say, we can get to that place where sin isn't such a big deal to us as Christians because we tend towards complacency. 
As Christians, as humans, we tend to complacency, whether that's part of the fall or what, I don't know, but it's, it is something that, that we struggle with, a, a natural bent towards complacency. And, and so from time to time, I think because God cares about the health of our soul, he drops stuff on us by way of the Holy Spirit in Scripture to make us consider how we're living the Christian life. We, we read passages like this. We read passages like Hebrews 6 that make us question whether or not we truly know Jesus. And, and it's, it's not a scare tactic by the Holy Spirit. It's a simply a wake-up call to those of us who find ourselves in a complacent place as we're living the Christian life. So let's, with that out of the way, all right, I, I hope that you can, you can juggle a few things in your brain as I speak about what's in front of us in this text. With those things out of the way, let's, let's talk about my first sub-point here, thinking seriously about the effect of sin on others, my sin. Thinking seriously about the effect of my sin on others. Like I opened the sermon with, we can, we can try to justify our sin by arguing that my sin is my sin and it really doesn't affect anybody else in the room or on the planet. It's just me and this. And, and if I'm willing to, to risk uh, jeopardizing my fellowship with, with God uh, for a moment of sin's pleasure, then that's between me and myself and I. And if it doesn't affect anybody else, you know, mind your own business kind of attitude. But I, I think that we're going to have a hard time really believing that statement or that attitude after we get through what Jesus is saying here. And I think it's helpful for the church especially. So as Jesus was teaching his disciples on this occasion, he wanted to make sure that they understood the seriousness of sin. In fact, it is one of the most serious things that we can encounter because sin affects each of us dramatically. We are indeed what theologians call totally depraved. Uh, you know, we don't, we don't walk around and, and, you know, call each other's depravity out, right? Hey, you're totally depraved today uh, because we value relationships. So we have to stick in the realm of theology as we think about these things uh, because they are true. We are, in fact, totally depraved, and that doesn't mean that we're as bad as we possibly can be. It simply means that sin has affected us totally. There isn't one area of our lives that sin hasn't touched. All right, we're totally depraved. Uh, it, it's, if we don't deal with sin that is pervasive in our lives, it will continue its decaying process in us and through us to others. Which is why Jesus used the word he did in verse 42, the word causes you will be interested to know, is where we get our word scandalize. <laughs> the word causes is actually scandalized. If anyone scandalizes a young believer like this child, you, you'd be better off being thrown into the sea with a large millstone around your neck. That's a pretty strong word, pretty strong thought, isn't it? Especially for Jesus, the loving Savior, to be saying. Scandalized? Yes. 
Our personal sins actually do affect those around us, even though it's private. And, and what does he say should be done to one who thinks otherwise? It would be better for him to, if a great millstone were hung around his neck, uh, the actual translation of the word great is donkey, a donkey millstone. What's a donkey millstone? It's one of those massive millstones that a donkey would pull around in a circle crushing grain. It wasn't uh, a small weight, it was a large weight. Uh, before the first service, I had a friend come up and give me this, what he called a millstone, with uh, Mark 9, 42 through 48 written on it, uh, just by way of, as a gift or not sure what, a sermon illustration. And I says, well, it's just about the size of a hockey puck and I could, you know, wing it across the room of someone who's fading, you know, <laughs> and just go ahead and put them to sleep, you know. But uh, this is a representation of a millstone, but the actual millstone was probably um, three or four times heavier than this pulpit, this whole thing. And it was used to crush grain, which is why it required a donkey to pull around in a circle. Jesus was using graphic language to communicate an important truth. This is serious business. Thinking seriously about our sin is important. If, if we're going to be a part of causing other believers to fall into sin, God takes that seriously. The Apostle Paul also does. He said this in 1 Corinthians 8. He argues this particular point that Jesus is making over the issue of diet, if you can believe that. If your diet causes somebody close to you to sin, you might as well hang a millstone, a donkey stone, around your neck and jump into some deep water. That's the seriousness of the matter that Jesus is saying is serious. All right? Jesus is saying that it would be better to die a horrible death, and that fits into the category in my mind, having a heavy stone wrapped around your neck and someone tosses you out of the boat. I mean, I suppose we could come up with something worse as a group, but that would be on the list, right? Yeah. If nothing else, Christian friends, Sun Valley Church, this encouragement from Christ, this, this drastic commentary from Christ, ought to motivate us to think a little bit more about our Christian freedom, or what we call our Christian freedom. And by the way, Jesus isn't talking about children here. He uses the child as an illustration in the same way he did in the last section on, in verse 30 or yeah, 30 through 37. He uses the child as an illustration, and in this case, the child is an illustration of a young believer. God takes the effect of our sin on young believers very seriously, is what we can say. So let's think for a moment about how we can cause another believer to sin. In case you can't come up with one yourself, I thought I would throw out a few ideas for us to consider. All right? Here they are. We can cause others, other believers, to sin by direct temptation. And you say, what do you mean by that? Well, how's this? Asking someone to participate with you in gossip. Starting a conversation about which you shouldn't be talking about. 
That is direct temptation. Something as common as gossip. Get something way heavier than this, wrap it around your neck, and go jump in Rimrock. Is what Jesus is saying. It's, it's, it'd be better for you to do that than to gossip with another believer. Being promiscuous with another believer at your invitation is similar. There are many ways that we can be directly responsible for someone's sin by asking them, inviting them to join us in some particular sin. Secondly, we can cause another believer to sin by indirect temptation. An example of this might be the way that a parent causes a child to become angry or discouraged or bitter because of lack of attention in the home, because of an, over, an overbearing dad, because of an unloving mom, because of unkind parents. The, the child becomes angry and bitter and resentful. That's a, a kind of a, an indirect way to tempt a believer. Another one might be the way you drive. Does the way you drive cause people like me to sin? I think I could have been, uh, I didn't know if this person was a believer or not, but I could have been the cause of someone's sin yesterday. I, Sherry and I moved to Selah a few weeks ago, and you'll have to forgive me for that, you West Valley people. Um, but Sherry and I moved to Selah, and I didn't realize this, but Selah is on a different planet. <laughs> and, and it's like people drive differently out there. And I didn't know this. And, and the, the way they paint the lines in the road is different. And so I'm, I'm, I drive, I, I was at Helms Hardware and I was driving out and I thought I was in the left lane to pull into the traffic going that way. And up beside me drives a young lady in a car and her windows were darkened out. I could kind of, kind of see, kind of not. And I had my left blinker on, she pulls up to my left and I'm going, okay, who, who's causing who to sin here? right? Is it me or her? And pretty soon she honks at me and says, get out of the way. I can't see the traffic. And I'm like, okay. And I had studied this text, so I knew it was either her or me, <laughs> one of the two. But this was, this was by an indirect temptation to sin. Either I was causing her or she was causing me to really get angry. And that's, I think that's the, the idea behind tinted windows. You really can't see clearly the hand motions that are going on in an occasion like that, which is a blessing. So I'm all for tinted windows. Um, thirdly, how do we cause others to sin in our life? By setting an example that other believers would follow into a sinful situation. Because you, after all, are a small group leader. You've been a Christian for such a long time and what you've done must be okay. You've grown up in a Christian home. Your attitudes must be all right for a Christian to have. So, so-and-so does this. So-and-so has said that. So it must be okay. That's an, that is an example set by someone who's supposed to be following Christ that if you're not careful can lead others into sin. Does that make sense to you? Are you an older believer? Like me, I've been a Christian since 
I was nine. I've been saved some before the foundation of the world, though, as you know. Uh, but is my attitude at all times one that would lead you uh, into Christ-likeness? It's a good question to ask. I need to be careful. You need to be careful. Because there's always a younger, more vulnerable believer in the room, right? Always. Paul addressed this issue in Romans to that church. He said to them in chapter 14, verse 13, Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another or any, any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance into the way of a brother. Don't be the source of stumbling. Paul knew this teaching of Jesus here in Mark 9. And then he said a few verses later in verse 21 of chapter 14, It's good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. Are you aware that you have Christian brothers and sisters that don't hold the same convictions that you do? And by you exercising your quote-unquote Christian freedom, you can cause a brother to sin? All I'm saying, and I think Jesus is probably saying more, but all I'm saying is we need to be careful, don't we? We need to be careful with one another. Let's continue. The fourth way that we can cause, and again, I'm just giving ideas here. There's probably way more. The fourth, fourth way we can cause uh, a little one who believes in me to sin is by failing to stimulate them to righteousness. Failing to encourage them to walk with Christ more closely. This is called a sin of omission. You omit doing something you should. We've been talking about a sin of commission. You know, friendly gestures from inside a tinted window uh, is a sin of commission. Saying something abusive with your mouth is a sin of commission. Withholding love, withholding kindness is a sin of omission. You're not doing what you should. Both are sinful. Both cause people to fall into sin. Right? So, are you doing that? Let me, let me read the scripture in case you want that information. Hebrews 10, 24. And let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works. There's the command. Are we doing it? Are you, am I, stimulating someone in my life to love and good works, to godliness, to Christ-likeness? How, where, who is being encouraged by me or by you to be more godly? It's a command. Am I doing it? How are you gonna do this? Personal encouragement, an email, a text, attendance a small group, being connected to other believers so that you can encourage them to love and good deeds. Are people becoming more like Jesus because of you and because of me? Yes or no? The command is obvious. Are we doing it? So we have these ways in which we can actually undermine the spiritual health of other believers around us without even trying. We need to be careful. We need to be circumspect. How we deal with others reveals, really, our relationship with Jesus. Remember what was just read earlier in the service, Matthew 25, 34 through 36. How, Lord, did we feed you? Did we, did we give you drink and all this? We, we didn't even know you were here. What? Who? And what did the king say? When you did it to the least of these, you did it to me. And so, how we treat one another 
How we view each other as Christians is actually revealing of our relationship with Jesus. Whatever you do to one another, you're doing it to me or not doing it to me. So we need to think seriously about how our, fin, uh, how our sin affects one another. Secondly, we see here, starting in verse 43, to think seriously about the effect of sin on ourselves, on myself, on yourself. Thinking seriously about the effect of sin on myself. Unless we personally pursue holiness, is there much likelihood that we're going to influence others towards that end? Is it likely that you're going to bring people closer to Christ if you're personally not pursuing him? I don't think so. I think that's an impossibility. And so here we have these words by Jesus, which are stark and shocking, actually. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. Or your foot. Or tear out your eye. Evidently, Jesus thinks this is pretty serious stuff as it relates to yourself. Never mind how your sin might affect your neighbor or your children or your fellow small group members. How it affects yourself. And you didn't think it was such a big deal, did you? Jesus says, look at the drastic problem with sin in your life. If your hand causes you to sin, you need to cut it off. Your foot and your eye. Friends, it's obvious that we can't overestimate the, import, the importance of personal holiness. Jesus wanted to push his followers as far away from impurity as possible because of the importance of this issue in your life. Sin is a big deal. The best way to think about this is to understand the seriousness of sin and its consequences. It's not just, oh, well, I blew it again. Let me ask you a question. Do you want to assist or be a detriment to those in your life regarding holiness? If you desire to assist and to encourage towards Christ-likeness, then you and I must deal seriously and severely with sin in our lives. John Owen, who was influenced by the apostles, concerning this particular teaching, wrote a book called The Mortification of Sin. In other words, The Killing of Sin. Uh, he, he said some pretty um, memorable things in that little book that's worth reading. It's a challenging read, but it's worth reading. And he said stuff like this, you'd better be killing sin or it will be killing you. That's memorable, isn't it? You're not gonna forget that for a few days. You'd better be killing sin or it will be killing you. But this is, this is from the pen of Owen in that book, The Mortification of Sin. Listen closely to these words as how they are so helpful understanding what Jesus is saying in Mark 9. By the way, is the only place in the New Testament it's recorded. That means it's important. <laughs> All right, so... Owen says, where sin, through the neglect of mortification, neglect of killing it, getting, you know, used to it, complacent about it, 
where sin, the, through the neglect of mortification, gets a considerable victory. It breaks the bones of the soul and makes a man weir, weak, sick, and ready to die so that he cannot look up. This is what happens if you allow sin to just go on without being checked. So that you cannot look up, and when poor creatures will take blow after blow, wound after wound, foil after foil, and never rouse up themselves to a vigorous opposition, you're unwilling to fight, can they expect anything but to be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin and that their soul should bleed to death? What else do you expect if you're not going to fight against sin? Why do you think that your spiritual life is so languid? So powerless. Here's why you're not willing to fight. You give in, you give up, you don't care anymore. Because it's, sin is second nature to us. Actually, it's first nature. <laughs> Christ-likeness is second. But we're used to it. And unless we're willing to fight, this is how we end up, just like Owen described. So you're thinking, all right, what areas do I, need, do I need to focus on? Well, what did Jesus say? Hand, foot, and eye. Do you think he was talking about your spiritual, I mean your physical hand, foot, and eye? No. He was using those three areas because they describe all of life. The hand, what you do. The foot, where you go. The eye, what you see and experience. The hand, the foot, the eye. Everything in the Christian life is covered concerning sin, the hand, the foot, and the eye. The fact that Jesus referred to hell, or actually he referred to Gehenna, but all the translations say hell, reveals that he thinks that this kind of commitment to holiness, this kind of desire to battle sin, comes along with conversion. It's, it's what it means to become a Christian. Because hell isn't on the table for us who truly embrace Christ, is it? But he includes it, so he's saying, listen, this is on the table here, not for Christians, but in initially coming to me, there must be repentance from sin. It's not, it is not okay to say or to suggest to anybody else who you're sharing the gospel with, oh, just come to Jesus now, take his offer of heaven, and worry about your commitment to him later. Worry about lordship later. Worry about obedience. No. They come hand in hand. You don't come to faith without a commitment to obedience, without a commitment to holiness. It's a, it's a farce, unfortunately, that the church has perpetrated on unwitting souls. Just come to Jesus now. Enjoy the benefits. Worry about that commitment stuff later. There's no such passage in all of Scripture that would suggest such a thing. It's because it's not true. It's baloney. The genuine Christian life doesn't have the option of lesser obedience or lesser holiness. We know that for every genuine believer, hell is not a conversation. It's, it's, it's been taken care of by Christ and his cross. We have no fear of hell if we've embraced Jesus. He wasn't trying, Jesus wasn't trying to scare believers into more circumspect life. Coming to faith in Christ means repentance. That's what it means. But, but, Jesus used the present tense verb 
of scandalize or causes in our English translation. It's present tense, ongoing, which means it needs to be a continual part of our Christian experience. We need to be looking in the mirror of God's word at our lives. We need to be examining ourselves, like Paul said, to see if we be in the faith. Am I truly following Jesus? Is an okay and good, and in fact, required question. This is what Christians do. We examine ourselves for sin, and we fight against sin every day of our lives. Like Owen says, don't give up on this battle. You need to vigorously go after it. In case you're tempted to interpret Jesus' statements here to mean that you need to literally cut off your hand or your foot or gouge out your eye, remember where Jesus said sin originates in chapter 7. You remember that conversation that Jesus had? Where does sin come from? The foot or the heart? The hand or the heart? The eye or the heart? Which one? The heart. So if you were to amputate some necessary portion of your body for the sake of holiness, you'd still have a problem, wouldn't you? You would just be a handless struggling Christian. Or an eyeless. You would still struggle with sin. So obviously, Jesus' hyperbolic teaching here dramatically emphasizes that God and pleasing him are more important than those things that seem indispensable to us in life, like the hand, the foot, and the eye. This is the level of importance to God of fighting sin, in other words. Secondly, second main point, dealing with the causes and purposes of trials. We got this strange conversation about salt and fire and saltiness and etc. A little confusing. I understand that. It's difficult. Again, challenging. But here's where we're going to apply the second principle of dealing with challenging text. One is, like I mentioned in the first point, context. The second is going other places in Scripture, the closer the better to the passage in view, to find out what they say that might be clarifying. But let me just say this as we work that direction. The inevitability of trials in the Christian life is obvious. And God uses trials in our lives to bring about spiritual maturity. Do you know how you become more like Jesus? It's not by avoiding trials. In fact, we're called to suffer with him. You remember that, Philippians? Suffering with Christ produces Christ-likeness. Becoming like Jesus requires a hardship, a trialing times in life. Paul said this in Romans 5. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings. That's craziness, rejoicing in our sufferings. Why? Well, here's why. Knowing that suffering produces endurance, endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit whom he has given us. That's why. Sanctification through trials is a running theme in Scripture. If you think that you can come to Christ and avoid, avoid trials in your life, you're reading a different Bible than I am. It's obvious in Scripture that trials is a part of what brings us to spiritual maturity. That's what God uses. Sanctification through trials, like I said, is a running theme, starting in Genesis. 
So let's look at the pain of trials. Verse 49, this, this was a confusing statement on the surface, for everyone will be assaulted with fire. What in the world? Well, there's a lot of different opinions about what that actually means. But, but try this on for size. When, when you come across scripture that's difficult to understand, the best thing to do is to go to other scripture that may be less challenging. And lo and behold, we find other scripture that sounds a lot like this. What does it say? How is it clarifying? Mark 49, as I just mentioned, is one of the most challenging verses in the Bible. And so let's go elsewhere. I did a little work for us um, and discovered that Ezra 6, 9, Ezekiel 43, 23, and 24 speak of this very thing in the same verse, salt and fire. And guess what they were both addressing? The sacrifices we give to God, salt and fire. In the Old Testament, people were required to bring sacrifices. And on those sacrifices had to be salt. And in order for the sacrifices to be accepted by God, it had to be placed on a fire, salt and fire, in the context of sacrifice unto the Lord. All right? In Leviticus 2, 13, Moses, is, Moses refers to salt and fire as they relate to the grain offering. Now, the grain offering was one of the five offerings that specifically in the Old Testament symbolized total devotion to a godly lifestyle. That's what the grain offering was about. A total commitment of oneself to God. The grain offering, which included salt and fire. So, take that information from Ezra, Ezekiel, and then here in Leviticus, and bring this back to Mark chapter 9, verse 49. For everyone will be salted with fire. And we have a little, we have a little direction, don't we? Some help, in other words. Every sacrifice will be salted with the fire. This interpretation of verse 49 sees in the sacrifice a symbol of God's commitment to us and in response to God's commitment to us, a commitment on our part to follow him wholeheartedly. That's what we see in the Old Testament passages, right? It's exactly what was going on. And so Jesus comes and uses that kind of language with these 12 men and the Holy Spirit determined to include it in Mark's record for you and me, right? This is, I think this is important. The, the salt, of course, was used to preserve the sacrifice for God's glory. And what's that mean? Your life needs to be salted, needs to be preserved in holiness for God's glory. On the fire of life, in the trials that, are, that we see are fiery. Uh, it's a good description of some of the things that you are going through right now, isn't it? Fiery? Yeah. And so you need to be preserved in holiness through the fire for God's glory and your joy, is what I think Jesus was teaching here. The salt preserves that sacrifice for God's glory and our joy and is what? ultimately consumed. That's what sacrifices were. They were consumed on the fire, on the altar. Like Jim Elliot said, thank you, Dennis, for that, but like Jim Elliot said, uh, consume me, Lord. Burn up the idle sticks of my life. Consume me. That happens to the Christian, doesn't it? If you're following Jesus, your life will be consumed by him, for him for your joy and for his glory. 
So listen to how Paul tried to explain this to the Roman church so that they could understand it. Just like you are struggling to understand this along with me, I'm sure this will help because Paul knew this very same subject came up with the Roman church, by the way, which Mark, who wrote this gospel, was a pastor of. Keep that in mind. <laughs> That's helpful context, right? But listen how Paul tried to explain this to the Roman Christians. Romans 12, 1 and 2. You know this by heart. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, in view of the gospel, chapters 1 through 11 were the gospel in Romans, right? Chapter 12, first thing out of his mouth when he's applying the gospel is this. I appeal to you, brothers, by the mercies of God, what? To present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing and acceptable to God, which is your act of spiritual worship. <laughs> this is becoming clear, isn't it? What Jesus was saying. When you include the scriptures of the Old Testament, when you include Paul's explanation of what Jesus was saying here in Mark 9, we see with our own eyes that God expects our lives to be a pursuit of holiness, to placing our lives on the altar of life before God for his glory and our joy. There's no other path forward, friends. You want to be a joyful Christian? Pursue obedience. Pursue holiness. It brings God glory, and it's the only way that you'll experience joy, lasting joy. This is what Jesus was trying to get through the heads of his disciples. This is what the Holy Spirit's trying to get through our heads, through every passage of Scripture in, that we come across in the New Testament and Old. This is the struggle of the Christian life, isn't it? It is. So this is how disciples need to be thinking. Jesus wants to make sure here, as he begins this, this church with this nucleus of men that are standing before him, he wanted to make sure that they knew that trials were a part of following him. This is the only way to get from where you are to Christ-likeness, is by enduring trials, difficult trials. Not paper cuts and hangnails, actual trials. Surviving a difficult marriage, navigating a wayward child, dealing with death, and everything else that we face. So we can see here, as Jesus said in verse 50, that salt is good, isn't it? <laughs> it produces what he wants in his people. It produces godly character. It produces Christ-likeness. Salt is good, to quote Jesus, but sometimes because of the pain of our trials that we're going through, we, we may misunderstand their value, and we start asking questions, why me, God? Why my child? Why not them? They never did it right, and look at their kids. Why me and my kids? Here's why right here. Missing the point of trials, which is a conformity to Jesus on all involved, is a major problem in the Christian life. If you think God is disciplining you or, or chastising you with the salt of your trials, you're misunderstanding what he's doing. He's conforming you 
to the image of his dear son. Believers are pictured in the New Testament and Old as sacrifices to God, hence the sheep illustration. We are the sheep of his pasture. What were sheep used for in the Old Testament? Besides wool, sacrifice. <laughs> we are the sheep of his pasture. And what were sheep doing in Psalms? Coming into his presence with joy, right? We are the sheep of his pasture, coming into his presence with singing, clapping our hands with joy on the way to the altar, <laughs> right? Is that how we think about the Christian life? Not too often. No. Friends, even though the Christian life is challenging, even though trials are painful, our loving Savior has a specific and glorious design in them. He gets glory and you get joy. Have salt in yourself, Jesus said. Knowing that trials come to address our concerns, our sinfulness, our lack of Christ-likeness, we must embrace salty trials and hardships knowing their results, knowing their intended purpose. Jesus' command to have salt in yourselves is really a, really a call to radical obedience and holiness throughout the difficulties of life. Have salt in yourselves simply means be a genuine Christian. Live like Jesus. Look like Jesus. Friends, there is so much that is in this short, action-packed section of Scripture. But, and we could talk a little bit more. I have a few more notes, but I, I, I don't want to be the source of sin in your life, so I'm going to end my sermon. All right? I'm going to take this to heart. And I think the, the Holy Spirit has enough fodder to work on in your life for the next few days. Pray with me. Holy Spirit, we acknowledge that in our weakness, sometimes these things seem overwhelming. Sometimes our circumstances seem unbearable. Uh, many times we just want to kind of hole up and not deal with all the stress that we're facing. But because you are a chaos-dealing God that, that deals with our chaos faithfully, that, that solves our chaos daily, I pray that you would continue to do that in us now, that as we consider the circumstances of our life, as we consider our pursuit of holiness, that you, Lord Jesus, would be glorified in our desires, in our actions, in our pursuit of you. That we would bring glory to you, uh, not just from what you see in our own lives, but the effect of what you see in others whom our lives impact. Help us to be faithful examples of following you. Help us to be good parents, to be godly neighbors, to be thoughtful drivers. Lord, help us not to lead others into sin. 
Help us to be a source of encouragement and hope and joy to those in our daily lives that we encounter. Lord Jesus, be glorified in our lives above all. And I pray this in your name. Amen.